I just wanted to thank everyone that submitted a review on Apple Podcasts for Kitchen Table Magic. Thanks so much. It really helps new listeners find the show by improving its discoverability on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to leave us a review, even though you don't have Apple Podcasts, just go to iTunes and find Kitchen Table Magic in the podcast section, and then click on the little five-star thingy. Thanks, everyone, for your support. Kitchen Table Magic is presented by Hipsters of the Coast. Hipsters of the Coast is the premier news and strategy blog for the Magic the Gathering community. Read up on insightful columns written by an expert team of Magic insiders. There's something for everyone. Discussion about legacy, commander, preview cards from the new set, and more. Go to hipstersofthecoast.com for news and strategy and all of your favorite formats. That's hipstersofthecoast.com. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Card Kingdom. With fast shipping, the best sleeves, deck boxes, binders, and all the modern legacy and commander staples you could ever want, Card Kingdom is there with the hookup. If you'd like to support the show, just use our affiliate link, cardkingdom.com slash KTM when you shop. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Paragon City Games. They're a community-focused game store in Draper, Utah that cares deeply about their player base. Tune in to watch their live paper and moto streams at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames for daily legacy action. Hello, sir. Could you please introduce yourself? My name is Patrick Sullivan. You might know me from various one-mana red spells like Lightning Bolt and Goblin Guide. Former pro, in quotes, Magic the Gathering player. And now I'm a game designer for Direwolf Digital Studios in Denver, Colorado. And I moonlight as a Magic the Gathering commentator on behalf of Star City Games. Patrick, I'd love to do a sound check question. How many places have you lived? I have lived in Hillsborough, New Jersey, Carlsbad, California, Oceanside, California, Irvine, California, Playa del Rey, California, and Denver, Colorado. So that is six different places I've lived. That's pretty cool. You know, what was really funny is when we were scheduling this call, I was like, hey, what time zone are you in? And you were like, mountain. <laughs> <laughs> and I lost it. That is a relatively new thing for me. I've been in, in Denver for about a year and a half. I spent 11 years out in Southern California and then left New Jersey. Grew up there and left around age 24. That's so funny. That's so funny, especially because you are so well known for playing Red. And of course, you're on Twitter as Basic Mountain. The fact that you were like, Mountain, I was like, of course, of course. Why did I even ask? It was only a matter of time. <laughs> Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, it's the walking, talking, basic mountain, legendary fire mage, Patrick Sullivan. Whenever I've asked anyone for advice playing Burn, they would always tell me to watch videos of Patrick playing Red. Patrick has a strong knowledge of how to carefully use resources in the game of Magic. His skill and experience with the game also makes him the best commentary buddy with Cedric Phillips. Together, Patrick and Cedric are the commentary phenomenon that powers SCG coverage. Patrick is a game designer for Direwolf Digital, making Eternal, and he also talks to us about the color red from a game designer's perspective. I hope you enjoy my interview with the legendary Patrick Sullivan. Hi everyone, thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and today we're here with the fiery Patrick Sullivan. Patrick, how are you doing? I'm doing well, how are you? Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. And where are you joining us from? I am in my attic in my house in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> Why in your attic? Because I got two screaming children downstairs. <laughs> and so this is the only way to get a modicum of quiet while we are recording this. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to have you on the show. We're going to talk about your life, your fiery career playing Burn. I mean, I've watched <laughs> so much video of you you wrecking people playing Burn in the most incredibly elegant ways. And of course, we're also going to talk about Red from the Wooberg series. But like all things, I want to start at the beginning. Where did you grow up and how did you find magic? So I grew up in a town called Hillsborough, New Jersey, uh, pretty rural in the center of the state, uh, maybe about 20 or 25,000 people when I was growing up there. So not the smallest place, but not huge. 
And every year for Christmas, my mom would go to a store in the mall called The Gamekeeper. I think that store was eventually bought out by Wizards of the Coast and became their Wizards of the Coast stores back in the day. But anyhow, she would go in there every year and just ask whoever was working there, what was the hot new game? And in the seventh grade, um, 1994 or so, the answer was magic. And so she bought one of the revised two-player starter decks. It was basically two revised starter decks jammed together with some beads and a rule book. Wow. And my brother and I each got a copy for Christmas, and we sort of tried to muddle our way through the rules. The rule book was not great, and uh, we were able to sort of get a sense of the game. But I wasn't aware of this, but plenty of my friends in middle school at the time were already playing Magic. So once I talked to them about having received this gift, they said, oh, well, we're already playing. They taught me the rules, and, and we went from there. Wow, that's so cool. Do you remember what some of your first decks were? My first decks. I had a red-green beatdown deck. One of the first combos I gravitated towards was Taiga and Curdape. I was able to latch onto that one pretty easily. Yeah. So I, I built some red-green beatdown decks. I had a blue-black control deck. I had a mono-white beatdown deck with Armageddon. My decks were pretty straightforward. One of the people that I went to middle school with, uh, his name is Eugene Harvey. People who have been following Magic for a long time may recognize that name. I think that he had, he fell off the ballot, but statistically has a very strong case for being in the Magic Hall of Fame, was a pro player in the early 2000s. But he was a year ahead of me in school and one of my close friends. We played Dungeons & Dragons together and he built some really creative decks. So I sort of copied him in a couple spots once he showed me how to build some more creative things. He had the first Ursatron deck I ever played against, but he was powering out the Hive and and Mishra's War Machine, not quite Wormcoil Engine and Karn, but he was sort of the more creative deck builder of the bunch. So I, I copied off of him quite a bit. My decks were very straightforward. Counter spells and removal, creatures and burn spells, creatures and Armageddon, that sort of thing. Yeah, it seemed like you were more either aggro or mid-rangey. It was not so much combo. No, I've never been much of a combo player. And of course, you had uh, several level-up moments in your early career. And of course, you went on to become quite successful playing Burn. I mean, I guess that's a that's a matter of degrees. My pro career, I tested a lot with Team Target. I, I played in Pro Tours. My first Pro Tour was New Orleans in 2001, I believe. It was Kai Bude's Illusions Donate Pro Tour. And I played quite a few Pro Tours from 2001 to 2005. But most of the decks that I played at Pro Tour were control decks. Part of that was the, pre the team predisposition. And part of that was just what happened to be good in Magic at the time. And prior to qualifying for the Pro Tour, when I was coming up kind of in the local scene, the first deck that I had uh, a lot of success with locally was was Mono Blue Magpie, just Magpie, Masticore, and something like 20 Counterspells. So wow. my transition to Red didn't happen until a little bit later on in my life. My Most of my Pro Tour days were spent playing mid-range decks and, and control decks. It sounds to me like the way you think about the game was very much about value, card advantage, tempo, making sure you're making the right play and really like grinding out your opponent. Well, that was, I mean, Magic, that was the game in 2002. I think they've done a much better job, uh, Wizards of the Coast I'm speaking of, of making the game and constructed more about attacking and blocking. In 2002, that wasn't what was going on. It was about executing combos. It was keeping your opponent off of being able to take a meaningful game action. The actual composition of the board and what's happening inside of combat really wasn't, that was a booster draft thing. The games, the games were almost two entirely different games. So part of that was I was a spiky player and I think I grabbed towards having a feeling of agency and control, but also Magic was just a very different game in 2001 and 2002 than in 2018. When did you gravitate into playing the burn decks that are you're so known for and everyone sees you playing? So my first experience was the, there was a team tournament back in the day called the Origins Team Challenge. This convention out in Columbus, Ohio called Origins. They used to have Magic Nationals back there way back in the day. And there was a five-person team event where one player was playing standard, then called Type 2. This is like 2001, way back in the day. So Type 2, Type 1, Vintage extended, block constructed, and then sealed, whatever the most recent block was. So I was the extended player because everyone else kind of called shotgun on their various formats. And we only had the cards for mono red. So I said, okay, well, I'll give this a shot. And we came in second. I don't remember my individual record, but it was it was quite good. And I just it was a very different experience than the magic I had played up until that point. And I spent the day beating, you know, someone resolved illusions of grandeur against me and donated to me. And I was able to win that game. I was beating Spike Feeders and Sanctimonies, just all these cards that were historically very hard for Mono Red to beat. 
the deck just kept plugging along. So I was really impressed, had a really good time. We did well in the tournament, and that was sort of my dipping my toes in the water in playing a different style of deck. And it wasn't until later until that was mostly all I played in Constructed, but that was a really powerful experience and uh, started pushing me more towards playing aggressive strategies in red decks specifically in Constructed. That absolutely sounds like a very powerful experience, because usually when Magic players experience something like that, they're just like, oh, I'm just really good. (laughs) But for you, you were like, hey, I feel like there was like a shift there, right? Because you were beating all these really interesting decks and you were just playing mono red. Right. And the deck, and the other thing about it is the deck felt like it had a ton of play. There's that stereotype that it's mindless or that it's straightforward. And that's not really the case. Your timing matters a lot. And your cards are so much weaker than your opponent's cards, by and large, that you don't have a lot of margin for error. So that was another part of the experience that I think really stuck out to me was going in thinking, well, this is mindless and straightforward, and then playing some really complicated, really rich games. Why do you think the community has rallied around you as an individual player when it comes to burn? I can't speak to that. A challenging question to answer. I think people gravitate towards anyone who picks a very particular style of deck and succeeds at any real competitive level. Most people have play styles that they really appreciate. There's decks or colors that they're, or individual cards that they're really drawn to. And usually the, the arc of a player is you like what you like at first and then you get better, and then you play whatever is good. And I think people gravitate towards certain members of the community who have success doing it their own way, because a lot of players would like to succeed that way. A lot of people enjoy Magic when they get to do the strategy, the color, the cards that they want to play, but it can be really dispiriting feeling like, well, that's not good enough right now, or the metagame's too bad, or whatever the reasons are. And so I think people can gravitate towards, even if you don't appreciate Mono Red, the experience of someone is kind of marching to the beat of their own drum, iterating on their own deck and doing well with it. And I think that's something that a lot of newer competitive players or less successful competitive players aspire for themselves. Magic is a very personal game. The whole game is about telling a story. The different colors of mana also tell their own story. They're like factions that have a personality even. There are many people out there who are just like, I love red. I love what it embodies. I love burn. I love that style of play. And watching you play burn is an incredibly unique experience. It is not at all what you think a burn deck should do. It happens almost like by miracle. I mean, I've watched quite a bit of your gameplay and just the things that you're able to do Sometimes the commentators aren't aren't even able to fathom how you were able to pull it off. A skill that I have developed and something that other people have commented on with my play, if there's something that, whatever you want to call it, separates me from a lot of other players that play that strategy, is I have a sense for when the game has hit a crisis point where either I have to win extremely quickly or I have to play like my opponent has nothing, or I have to alpha strike to get in two points of damage and lose my board, or when I have to start chump blocking much earlier on in the game. I have a lot of respect for how underpowered the cards are that I'm playing with, and I have a sense of when you have to sort of, you can no longer play a conventional game. You have to take some risky lines, or you have to assume that the top of your deck is going to be very cooperative, or you have to assume your opponent's going to draw two lands in a row. And I think having that sort of respect for your deck's own shortcomings is a important part of playing it properly. You know, that's a skill that I think I I definitely didn't have at first, but over time, I, I think I've developed it. Patrick, we want to ask you a little bit more about the red color identity for our Wooberg series. And so I just wanted to ask you, what do you know about red that you think other players don't generally know? I think people think that the framework for the games when they're playing red is all about the life total. And what I really appreciate about playing red and particularly aggressive red strategies, if you've played a blue control mirror match, the games are largely just about card advantage and land drops or just generating mana. Your life total is kind of an afterthought. When you're playing certain green or white creature matchups, the game is largely about having the best presence on the battlefield. And even if you're behind on cards, or even if you're behind on life total, if you have this advantage, you're able to leverage it. With red, and I think part of the reason I really appreciated the experience when I played it the first time was, sometimes it's about life total, that matters often. Sometimes it's about card advantage, either forcing your opponent to have dead cards, or playing around certain cards, or getting trying to get profitable blocks. Sometimes it's about presence on the battlefield and 
making certain double blocks to get their biggest thing off the battlefield. The games can be very fluid and they can be about different things inside of the same game. Whereas a lot of the magic I had played previous was it's just about mana and card advantage or it's just about having the best thing on the battlefield. And I think the fact that the games can be so fluid about what matters, I think is something that I personally appreciate a lot. And I think something that a lot of players don't necessarily think is the case. I think they think it's very mindless, very straightforward, just about lava spikes and counting down from 20. And some of the games are like that, but not all of them. And you have to be able to identify when the game's about one thing and when the game is about another thing and when those roles have shifted a little bit too. What I really hear you say is really being able to value resources in a particular way when every single turn each player gets to draw one card. The concept of card advantage as a, as a theory in gameplay is very important, right? You don't want to get two for one because that means your opponent is suddenly ahead. And what you were just talking about, valuing life, it's not just about counting down from 20. It's all about. It's also about valuing what the board state is, valuing what your position is, valuing what the other opponent's lines of play are. It's having much more situational awareness, taking more of a holistic approach about what is actually going on and how to value different cards at different times. Right. Like a, a really good example, I think, of, of this is how do you play around days in Legacy? You generally don't want to run into a daze if you can avoid it. And if you've gone on for a really long time and not played into a daze and your opponent has brainstormed and shuffled, I'm usually willing to dial up my willingness to play in a daze a little bit because there's a good chance that that daze has been shuffled away at that point. If a card that I'm trying to set up is Price of Progress, I value playing around days less because the daze is naturally good against Price of Progress, even if I play around it, because they're going to be able to pick up one of their non-basic lands. Or if they play a Wasteland, and then they can Wasteland one of their own dual lands in response. So there's this question of how do you play around days or do you play around days? And that's something that it's a really complicated. You can't just answer that sort of question in a vacuum. And the answer can change from turn to turn, depending on what your opponent's up to and what you've drawn and what priorities have shifted in the game and how much time you think you have and all those those different factors. And that's a way to essentially generate card advantage. If they can't convert their days into anything meaningful, or you know they shuffle it away and they've kept an extra land that isn't very valuable, it's not card advantage in the way that divination is card advantage, but you know it's functionally very close. Patrick, what are the mechanics that are essential to red as a color identity? To the identity, I would say direct damage, very good with and against artifacts, various forms of land destruction, dragons, goblins, and not that they do a ton of random designs, but anything in the coin flipping space, warp world type designs, the lion's share of that stuff goes to red. Yeah, all of those random effects, I think, are so interesting. You know, like we know about direct damage spells, we know about dragons and goblins and first strike and artifact destruction and blowing up lands. That's that's always really fun. But this whole random aspect of it, sometimes it almost feels like when I see card design in that space, I'm just like, oh, that's kind of unplayable. I don't, I don't even know when that would be played. But it's obviously not because they made it. Well, it's, you know, a little bit goes a long way. There's a certain segment of the population that... They don't even care about whether they're winning or losing with their Warp World deck. They just want to see some crazy stuff happen. That doesn't justify a Warp World every set, but every year or two, sure. And it, you know, for players that are competitive, they can just bracket that card off and forget about it. But for the person who's in for the that sort of experience, one of those designs every once in a while goes a long way. Interesting way you put it, because I, I always looked at it and I was like, hmm, going to bracket this one off. But you're right. I guess if someone is like, hey, I really want to see what goofy things can happen, then that, that kind of stuff is gold. Right. As long as it's not causing you any harm and someone is out there enjoying it. Yeah. But you don't want to make the game too much about that sort of stuff. There's some people who are really turned off by random experiences and the cards aren't always the most elegant designs. But doing one every once in a while, I think, is major net upside for Magic's audience. Patrick, what do you feel like is the role of Red within the game of Magic the Gathering? I mean, more than anything else, it's about having a more emotional, less controlled experience. Whether or not the deck is particularly powerful, whether or not it's playing a lot of cheese stuff and burn or trying to ritual into something big. I think it's really important for Red to, for example, not get a whole lot of smoothing of draws. I think it's important for them to get cards that have drawbacks or that you can't always control, car creatures that are forced to attack, things where it's not about having full control of the experience, but trying to maximize your cards for what they are. I think that a lot of people that are drawn to red, it's not necessarily a reckless experience, but it's a little bit more of I'm gonna push on this real on this particular proactive thing and I'm gonna try to manage my 
resources as best that I can, but not have full control of it along the way. Red always seemed to be a chaotic color. That kind of is like the flavor to it. But very early on, when I first started to learn how to play Magic, I built my little Elves deck, then I built my little White Weenie deck. I found Blue and Black to be more challenging to play, and my Red Burn deck was very linear. I would bolt people and then play like a Vyashino Sand Scout and you know, or something like that, like a Flowstone Hellion, you know, just like goblins, things like that. It felt linear to me, and it also felt like these red spells were great for control. And then every once in a while when you got into range, you would bolt to the face and win suddenly. And it seemed more aggressive, more ferocious, also a little bit spontaneous if, you know, like I wasn't a very good player at back of the day. So I was just like, I don't really know where the spells are just going to come out of the blue to be able to like, I wasn't necessarily setting up any plays or anything like that. But it also seemed to me that red brought a kind of gameplay that the other colors really couldn't mimic. Yeah. So the Vyashino Sandstalker type of design, I think, is really telling. So black gets really explicit drawback designs, you know, Lord of the Pits style stuff. Red gets a little bit of that, too. But the Vyashino Sandstalker is a really good example of is haste and return this to your hand at the end of the turn. Is that a drawback or is that a power? It's confusing. Sometimes it's really powerful that it does that. And sometimes it's not. You don't have control over the way the card operates like you normally do with creatures that just attack and block normally. And you've got to figure out some way to maximize this or not care about the drawback or turn the drawback into a power. So I think that sort of example versus the Lord of the Pit lurking evil hidden horror style designs in black that are just, no, this is a penalty. You're getting upside. You're getting a large creature for the mana cost, but that you are paying a cost to get that. So I think that sort of differentiation between black and red is, is really important. Patrick, you work at a game studio. Could you share with us a little bit what you think is the future trend of red in Magic the Gathering? Well, if you're speaking to like power level, what's good, I think Magic has correctly moved away from the power being in burn spells and more in creatures. That doesn't mean that red's not competitive. In fact, red has been, you know, mono red aggro has been one of standard's best decks for a while now, maybe the best deck. But I think there's more room for interaction when the game is more about attacking and blocking rather than I hit you with this goblin guide once and now I'm going to lava spike you out of the game. So I think Wizards is going to continue to to push on that direction. Put power, if you even very good aggressive creatures that cost one or two mana, now they make two ones for one that have powers back in the day. Two ones with drawbacks were deemed too good. They have creatures that are, you know, I, I played with some really bad two drops, Firebrand Ranger type of stuff back in the day. Now you get things like Kari Zeb, which are just good, attractive designs. I think you're going to see less of chars and fire blasts and even stagger shock searing blazes. I think you're going to see less of that be where the power in red comes from, at least for aggressive strategies. Yeah, we've seen a move to really interesting small creatures from Red. It almost felt like Red got like the white weenie treatment, right? We had like Zergo Bellstriker and Kari Zev and like all of this really interesting stuff, like Harsh Mentor. I mean, they they don't have to be Goblin Guide absurdly good, but they're definitely like Savannah Lions Plus. Yeah, and to your point, I, I think that's really salient that if you do too much of that, it starts trampling on white's identity a little bit because that's supposed to be the color that gets really good cheap creatures. So even if you want to say, we can do better than Jackal Pup, we can give you Falcon Wrath Gorger, I think it's important for white's creatures to be better still because you don't want to feel like well, red gets all the best cheap creatures and all the burn spells. Why would I ever play white? So even if you want to improve red's cheap plays in the way that you know we, we've just mentioned, you got to prop up the white cards, the white cheap creatures even more, so white keeps that part of its identity. I also really like how Red has been approached in terms of Planeswalkers. Planeswalkers is this really interesting, it's not a spell, but it's also not a creature, and it like is also kind of like a life sink, and they do so much. I mean, looking at the design of like Koth of the Hammer, right? Like, it gives you red mana, it can turn a mountain into like a big creature and attack, and, and it's almost kind of like an out-of-the-nowhere burn spell that comes crashing in. And then the emblem allows you to use your mountains to essentially tap and burn and ping basically any you want. That's absurdly powerful. But even on a different axis, you look at Chandra Torture of Defiance. Now you've got card draw and shoot something spell and give you mana and do all these really powerful things. It's like, huh, they're really expanding on some of those themes we talked about before. 
repackaging them, definitely upping the power level to them on a different axis that, you know, not like a goblin guide, not like a hazard. And yeah, you got to be careful about that stuff too. You know, so Chandra Torch Defiance, your eyes wide open, spending a lot of PowerPoints there. The point of that card is to be one of the, you know, foundational cards of standard. And it defines a lot of what's good and what's not good. You, even though Chandra has a card advantage of power, it's really important for it to not feel like Jace the Mind Sculptor or Jace Bellerin. So you need to have this effect that you, even though you can grind out card advantage with it, it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's situational. It doesn't always work. Sometimes, you know, you, you can never hit a land off of it. If you're trying to get mana, you're better off using the power that gives you two red, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's a really cagey way of doing card advantage, a card advantage planeswalker in red. It does have some games where it feels like, yeah, I'm drawing two cards a turn. I'm running away with a game of the Chandra, but in a way that's different than the blue planeswalkers that draw cards. Patrick, where do you see red in the future from a design space? Are you concerned at all about the juxtaposition between red as a bunch of aggressive creatures versus more of a legacy red, which is about burn spells? It's hard to add to the legacy builds. The, the burn spells there are so efficient. They're better than they do nowadays. And I don't mind that being the case for Legacy. Legacy is a format that's about not allowing your opponent to interact by either, you know, killing them really early on in the game or countering all their stuff or blowing up all their lands or just making the game about something different that your opponent's not really prepared for, at least game one. And I think that the Lava Spike deck, it gives, it has a very emotional sort of feel to it that's different than the other decks. It's not certainly one of the most powerful strategies in Legacy, so you don't have to worry about it from a power level standpoint. But I think it's good to preserve that sort of feel for the older formats. But I think for Standard, it is healthier for Magic for the games to be about creatures that attack and block rather than, I didn't play something until turn two, their 2-1 hit me twice, and now I'm definitely going to get burned out of the game. There's nothing I can do to stop this. So I think for Modern and for Legacy, it's fine if the format's about Lava Spikes and it's unlikely that new cards get added to the deck. Although, who knows? You know, Eidolon, the Great Rebel, and Monastery Swissbeer are relatively recent printings that have made impacts in Modern and Legacy. So you don't know for sure. But I, I think it's better if the, the Chain Lightnings and, and the Fire Blasts are a relic of yesteryear. And if Standard in, for Red Aggressive Strategies is more about Kari Zevs and Falconrath Forgers. Patrick, I love what you said about red in a game design standpoint. Um, as nostalgic Magic players, you know, a lot of us have been playing Magic for a really long time. I've definitely been playing Magic for over 15 years, and you've been playing Magic ever since 93, 94, since the beginning of the game. And so we have a connection to what we think a color identity should do from the past, where we think it's going. But your day job, you are a game designer for Direwolf Digital. Could you tell us a little bit about what some of your philosophies are about game design? So uh, I work on a project called Eternal. We're, we're up on Steam. Patrick Chapin is sort of the initial design lead, and I'm the final design lead for most of the sets. Uh, we have a lot of other Magic players working on the product, notably you know LSV and Conley Woods, Ben Lundquist, and, and Andrew Beckstrom. So we have we're pulling you know largely from the the Magic community and a lot of tournament players as well. I wouldn't say that I have a philosophy about game design that can be summed up in one sentence. I guess the closest thing. This is something I told a group of interns once when they, they all came to the office and they were looking for some wisdom. And I said, even though every game has a winner and a loser, some games are more popular than others. So figure out why that's the case. I think a lot of people get hung up on in game design about the particulars of the metagame balance, making sure that all the decks and play patterns are at some sort of equilibrium. I think that sort of thinking gets you into trouble because you're going to be wrong sometimes. And if you assume too much about what your format balance looks like, you're going to get into trouble. But fundamentally, people play games when they're fun. People lose. You go to a Magic tournament, we focus so much on who wins and, and who top eights. For everyone who wins in top eights, there's got to be a handful of people who don't win a single match. What about the experience will keep them coming back? And I think that's really important thing to focus on. It's empathy for the loser, empathy for the experience of someone who maybe isn't very good at games. You have to pr protect is the wrong word, but you have to make sure that their experience is a positive one. And playing card games competitively or playing any game competitively can really get you in this framework where you're only focusing on winning and the experience of the winner. And I think to do a good job of designing games, you know, you have to be also making sure that the people are having a good time, even if they aren't winning very much. 
That's fascinating you bring up that topic, really the psychology and mechanism of what a game for humans, what that even means, that construct of a game. When you look at magic, every single round, 50% of everyone in the room are going to lose, right? <laughs> or close to 50. I mean, we're not talking about the draws, but a vast portion of the room, are, they're going to lose. And sometimes I even find myself that I have more fun when I lose. I'm able to experience a particular problem-solving mechanic fully, right? Like if I'm playing a mirror match and my opponent beats the crap out of me, hey, I learned something. And that learning is exciting. Seeing and experiencing something is very exciting, regardless if I win or lose. And it also makes the wins more satisfying when they aren't guaranteed ahead of time. That's part of the reason why I think that the randomness in magic, even though it can be frustrating sometimes, it's people rail against certain elements of it. You are invested every round you sit down because even if you're playing against the worst player in, in the store or even if the matchup's extremely good for you, there's no guarantee that that's enough to win the game. And I think the fact that it's not deterministic in that way means every round matters and it feels different. And there's a sense that anything is possible. Anything could happen. And even if your rounds are pretty straightforward, even if your matchups go the way they're supposed to, the feeling when you sit down that it could be different this time that I could be tested in a different way or that I might pull off this incredible upset that I wasn't expecting. I think that's a big part of what makes tournaments engaging to play in. Absolutely. That level of competitive play is always very exciting in the early rounds of a GP or a pre-TQ. Not going into the experience being like, oh yeah, I'm going to win this. It's like, I, I really don't know. I have no idea who my opponent is going to be. And even if you do know who your opponent's going to be, it's still like, hey, anything can happen, right? I have a shot. They have a shot. I mean, you know the feeling when you're on the draw in game one and you're waiting for your opponent to play their first land to find out what they're playing. Like that experience never gets old, right? I've been playing Magic for 25 years now and or close to it. And that experience of the anticipation of finding out information and having the game unfold in front of you, it's, it's still cool. I mean, that's that's really telling, I think. You're taking these concepts and you're working with your colleagues to put them into an experience such as Eternal. Yes, the common misconceptions about game design, I think there are two. I'm going to borrow from an old colleague of mine, Matt Place. It seems very easy. It's actually quite hard. And it looks like it's science. It's actually much closer to art. So a lot of the conversation we have, it's not about... I think there's this perception that we're grinding out thousands of games and going over the spreadsheet of information, tweaking numbers here and there to try to get everything in equilibrium. And that's some variations of that is a small part of the job. But it's largely, we aren't going to play nearly as many games as the public is going to end up playing. We just can't. So we have to, it's more about making educated and probabilistic calls about what you want to promote. What should we protect ourselves from? What possibilities are out there for us that are bad that we should insulate ourselves from? How do we find mechanics that are fun and promote them and make them, you know, emerge in competitive play without feeling like we're just building people's decks for them? That's way more of the job than I think the perception of, we're just banging out a million games and we're going over the, the results of those games and then adjusting the file accordingly. There's always this perception from the community that there is an equilibrium, right? You even mentioned that term yourself, like this puzzle can be solved. I almost don't really see it that way. I almost feel like it's like rock, paper, scissors. You have something that you're going to prey on and then you're also going to have something that's going to prey upon you. And it is not going to be like, here's the end all be all of strategies or decks. Right. And and, and that, that also doesn't speak to, we shouldn't just be striving for equilibrium. We should be striving for an experience that is fun. Let's imagine, for example, that the metagame could be better balanced if 25% of the room was playing a really powerful land destruction deck. If all you value is the metagame being balanced, however you want to define that, then that can lead you to say, let's put a lot of power in stone reigns. But it doesn't speak to the experience of people have a bad time when their lands get blown up all the time. Even if we have a more balanced metagame, people have a worse time. You also don't want to make the game about the same thing over and over again. You want to push the boundaries a little bit, but in spots that are judicious, that are eyes wide open, rolls of the dice. So it's, like I said, this is not science. <laughs> this is... This is much closer to art. Now, there are times after the fact where we are, you know, the set's been up for a little while and we are actually pouring over data and seeing what's good and maybe having a postmortem about things we should have done differently or things to look out for for the next set. But in terms of working on the set that isn't up live yet, we are much more about making educated guesses and trying to promote particular things rather than just let's just strive for, for pure balance. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned it is an art, it is not a science. 
even art goes through its transitions of classic art, modern, and then postmodern, and it evolves over time, building upon its previous generation. And when we look at gaming today, gaming back in the day was like, oh, something that geeks and nerds did, and you know, gaming, oh boy. But today, everyone games. Gaming is part of the mainstream culture. And so the iteration and rise and fall and cyclical nature of how many people are playing games is exploding to this huge degree. And so I'm even curious to ask you, Patrick, how do you feel about games as they try to iterate, as they try to grow and build new mechanics until the point where they're no longer being themselves anymore? I think people underestimate just how much design space there are in games. It feels like every couple of years, or even I would say even more recently than that, that something comes out that's revolutionary is either an iteration of something previous or something that feels kind of groundbreaking. And how many ideas spring off of that idea? You know, not to say necessarily that Pokemon Go is the most unique invention of all time or that you couldn't have gotten there by combining some pre-existing things. But that was kind of a groundbreaking thing in games for a little while. And how many ideas are adjacent to that that you can iterate on, improve upon, combine that with something else? So I'm, I'm not worried so much about do we run out of things to consider in games? I, I think the space is just uh, close to unlimited. <laughs> that doesn't justify every game that gets out there. I think, I think a lot of, uh, to be honest, a lot of crap is out in the pipeline and a lot of things that don't adhere to good game design philosophy and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not worried about the well going dry. You know, we've talked about gaming from the standpoint of a game designer, a game maker, and the game itself, the mechanics of the game. What about its community? I mean, you do commentary for Star City Games, you and Cedric, you two are two peas in a pod, everyone knows you. And community is quite important, especially with your role as a pillar of the community, commenting, building, educating, teaching, and communicating about the game. Well, I think that's, you know, as gaming, I think it's more and more into a digital realm. It's a challenge for Magic. You know, how do they make themselves competitive in a digital age? And you're seeing changes to Magic Online and Arena as all part of that sort of push. But an advantage that Magic has is it's a collective collaborative game that you play with your friends, that you sit down and socialize. I think there's always going to be a market for that sort of thing, even if gaming more and more moves into a, a digital arena. Magic needs to find... that's That's the balance. I think that's the challenge for them is... How do you have fidelity to your physical product and what the history that the game is rooted in while still being able to transition the product into more of a a digital medium? As far as the commentary stuff goes, it's funny that you say pillar community and all that kind of stuff. I've never really seen it that way. I I guess that's sort of that's naturally kind of a consequence or some people are going to see me in that light. But uh, but honestly, it's it's just a job that I really enjoy doing. If, If people derive value out of it, if it gives me a microphone to to say certain things or to to try to promote certain positions, that's great. But I've never seen myself as in that sort of framework. I'm just someone with a job and it happens to involve magic and it happens to be more visible than some jobs that other people have. But I don't look at myself in terms of where is my pecking order in the community or am I someone who carries more water than this other person? I just that's never been my framework for evaluating the work that I do. What advice do you have for people in the community that are very interested in doing commentary? I think that you have to promote yourself without promoting yourself. That's a really tricky thing. I know that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I think you need to be doing things that show off either some public speaking chops or some sort of communication chops. So podcasts are great, writing's great, doing videos, all that kind of stuff can get your visibility up there. But I think something that's been true of the people that have kind of come up and gotten roles in commentary is there is a clear passion for the game. And I know there are some times where, you know, it's reductive, but I'm a little bit of a sourpuss or sarcastic or downer. But I do honestly love magic and its tradition and uh, large parts of its community. I would hope that that does shine through. And I think the people that have gotten positions or have become more visible, people gravitate towards that. They love what they love. They think what they love is cool. And they want the people that promote that stuff to feel the same way and to clearly be about it. So I think you've got to do a mixture of the two things. I think you've got to, you've got to produce content in a way that's not self-congratulatory or self-aggrandizing. You need to have these passion products. My route to becoming a commentator is so unorthodox. I, I can't say that it's a template for other people to follow, but just what I've observed. Put yourself out there. Do good work. Be passionate about it. Don't have an expectation that it's necessarily going to result in any sort of you know financial rewards. And I think that's, that's really the best role that I say you have. 
Okay, everyone, we're going to be taking a quick break for our sponsors, but we'll be right back. Okay, Patrick, you have a special Patreon supporters gift for us. Could you tell us what it is? Well, I'm going to be signing some lightning bolts that I will be then sending back to you, and you will be distributing to them to your various Patreon supporters. I am so excited. Lightning bolt from the Fire Master himself. Tell us why lightning bolt? It's iconic. It's simple. It's clean. It's been a part of Magic since Magic has existed, starting in Alpha and now all the way to the most recent boutique product that they're putting out, Masters 25. And and when I'm working on the SEG tour uh, is the card I am asked to autograph the most. So I'm assuming there's some interest out there. It's the first card that came to my mind, natural fit. And so uh, you'll be sending those along to me and I will be sending them back and then you will do with them as you will. I love it. I am so personally excited because Lightning Bolt was one of those cards that I got like way back in the day. And it's such a beautiful card. <laughs> it's such a simple, beautiful card. It's so well played. I love Bolt Snap Bolt. I love Bolt anything. Bolt to the face, <laughs> Bolt for the win, Bolt myself for certain random reasons. It's just awesome. And I am so excited. So thanks so much for that, Patrick. Oh, my pleasure. Listeners, if you'd like to get sweet gifts for my interviews, become a supporter at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Your financial support keeps the show running by paying for audio equipment, editing software, and server costs. As a token of my appreciation, you'll be personally acknowledged by me at the end of each episode, and you'll get signed cards from my guests, like this lightning bolt from Patrick Sullivan himself. Supplies are limited, so hurry. Again, if you'd like to join the squad, head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Mucho thanks to all my Patreon supporters, past, present, and future, who are amazing people that always curve out on their first three turns. Thanks for your support. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic was brought to you by Paragon City Games. Kitchen Table Magic has been all about the origins of the game and the members of the community. And as a community, we've come a long way since the game first started. Apart from the kitchen table, the only other places in your local community to play Magic are at local game stores. And that's why places like Paragon City Games are so important for our community. At Paragon City Games, you'll find a spacious and clean showroom with lots of elbow room for weekly Magic events. You'll find thoughtful accessories like die-hard metal dice and handcrafted wooden deck boxes. You'll find a huge supply of legacy, modern, and standard staples, sealed product, and tabletop games. It's places like Paragon City Games with their friendly staff that allow local Magic communities to gather in. And if you can't make it there in person, be sure to watch their weekly stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They have great online reviews that shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Card Kingdom. Cardkingdom.com is a great place to shop for Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, pre-constructed decks, and gaming accessories. They have a huge selection of Magic cards, from the latest sets to an ever-flowing supply of modern, commander, legacy, and standard staples. Card Kingdom also loves to buy Magic cards. They'll offer you cash or in-store credit for your Magic cards. And if you're new to Magic, you'll love playing any one of their pre-constructed battle decks built by Card Kingdom. Be sure to sign up for Card Kingdom's email newsletter to receive coupon codes, special deals, and deck techs by Magic Pro Chris Van Meter. Card Kingdom has so much to offer, fast shipping, great customer service, so I hope you'll check them out. And if you'd like to help support Kitchen Table Magic when shopping at Card Kingdom, please use our affiliate link. Just go to cardkingdom.com slash KTM when you shop. Okay, and we are back. Patrick, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? Ready to go. Okay, here we go. Patrick, rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, which is your favorite color and why? Red, and for the reasons I spoke of before, of a feeling like the game becomes about different things at different times. Okay, and if you could pair red with another color, what would it be? White, because I lose to enchantments a lot. So I like having a, I like having a color that can blow up enchantments. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like white is that, like a good color that kind of does everything red just doesn't do enough of. I also really like the feel of the of the Boros stuff. I think they do a really good job of the soldiers and clerics and feeling, get, giving that sort of militaristic vibe, I think is, is very evocative too. So I, I like the, the flavor of that guild quite a bit. 
And I think it's so interesting that when you take something as chaotic and as frenzied as red and you mix white into it, that it suddenly becomes very militaristic, very disciplined, very lockstep. Right, because combat is both organization and chaos. So I, I think their flavor team does a really good job with, with that guild in particular. Okay, Patrick, rapid fire question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Ooh, that is a that is a tough one. I think I would put less power into creatures that just enter the battlefield and do their thing, you know, rogue refiner type of stuff. And I would want more cards that activate at sorcery speed, make the game more about investment, making the game more about players committing to things rather than just I untap with the scarab god, I say go, I've got all my mana, no matter what you try to do, I'm going to be able to respond and, and blow you out. Make the player with the scarab god tap out on their own turn a little bit more. That, that would be my biggest philosophical change. Okay, interesting. Changing the pace of the game. Patrick, rapid fire question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? I would give them a booster pack of Revised. Okay. Which is obviously quite expensive, but that was the first set that I played along with the Dark. And I think going through those cards, that art, it's so, to me, so evocative of a Dungeons & Dragons campaign. I think they did a good job of capturing it with M10. Maybe M10 is the answer because it's a lot more affordable than a revised booster. But I think those sets do such a good job of capturing the essence of a fantasy universe. And I find pouring through those spoilers and looking at those cards and shuffling through them would be really satisfying. And they're bringing back core sets. So maybe core 19 will be a little bit like revised or a little bit like M10. And I imagine if they're going with the name Dominaria, they are going to be tapping into that essence as well. Very cool. We are all looking forward to it. Patrick, rapid fire question number four. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? Well, that's a that's a really broad question. But Everything is going to fall out, or a lot of it's going to fall out from that competing urge to be the best possible physical game and being the best possible digital game. And there are some places where that conflict is, you can't really reconcile it, and you've got to make some choices about what you want the game to be. And I think once you have that vision for what you want to prioritize or what you want the game to be about, there's so many decisions that fall out of that. I wouldn't really want to speculate on the future, but that to me, if I was working over at Wizards of the Coast, that's every day, that's that's the question on the whiteboard. That's that's going to be the vision for the product for the next five or 10 years. And last, Patrick, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? Be kind to players, especially players that are not as good as you, especially when they beat you in matches. I remember coming up, I have all these moments. Uh, the first Grand Prix that I went to was Boston in 1999 or 2000. It was Invasion Sealed. I lost playing for day two. And before playing in this Grand Prix, I had seen, you know, I was following coverage. I was playing PTQs and really invested. And in I remember going there and seeing Brian Kibler and the Your Move Games guys and Dave Price and all these people that I read in the coverage. And I was 19 years old and really obnoxious. And everyone there was so kind to me when I went up there and asked them for an autograph or just wanted to muscle in on a conversation they were having with their friend. And I think that if, if people had been more cruel to me, cruel is not even the right word, if they had just been not as gracious about it, I think it would have really negatively impacted wanting to be involved in the community and wanting to pursue magic. And you just don't know who the people are who are going to end up sticking it out and becoming really valuable members of the community and or producing things that are valuable or just really enjoy the game and bring their friends into it. So I know the losses can be frustrating. And I know when you're invested in winning and trying to play competitively that you can get so wrapped up in it that your opponents even stop feeling like human beings you have any obligation towards. But it's important. It doesn't seem like it matters, but there's a butterfly effect on, on so much of the behavior that happens in a game like this. And just try to be mindful of it. I love it. Wise words from the Sage of the Mountain. Thank you so much, Patrick. I love everything that you've said and everything that you've shared. Your insight is incredibly valuable because from your experience as a veteran of the game, the high level of play and high level of thinking and communicating and teaching that you have about the game and burn and everything, all the coverage that you've done, you've really made a significant positive impact on the community. So I just wanted to thank you. And I really appreciate you being here and speaking with us and sharing with us your insights. Because, uh, you know, like I said earlier, whenever I've seen you on coverage, it's exciting. 
exceptional. Really, you and Cedric, your coverage is just exceptional. And I even said this to Cedric in my interview with him. And also watching you play Burn, it's like a masterclass. Like fire awakens within me. And I'm like, where are my red cards? I want to go out and burn some people. Thank you so much for everything that you do. Well, well, thank you for having me. And I mean, thanks to you as well. I mean, these podcasts... You know, all the work that people do in this space, it's a its a labor of love. If you actually just look at the time in versus the, the money out, it's almost never a good exchange. And so credit goes to you too for for doing this and for reaching out to me in the first place and uh, for, for producing these. I'm sure that the community really loves it. And that's a function of your labor as well. Thanks for that. And I hope that people listening can appreciate the amount of work that you put into what you do as well. And I just want to take it back to what I said earlier. Be kind. It matters. It actually matters a lot. And it can get lost in the shuffle of, of other things. And I definitely had years of not adhering to that philosophy when I was trying to qualify for the Pro Tour and, and, and playing on the Pro Tour. But most people don't end up having a lot of success playing Magic competitively. If you're talking about you know Pro Tour championships or making a living doing it. So it's just not worth the cost of being cool or trying to edge out every advantage because the odds are that you just you don't end up making it and everyone thinks you're mean. So at least you can be kind. <laughs> I really enjoyed talking with Patrick about his thoughts on magic, especially from a game designer's perspective. Go say hi to Patrick on Twitter at Basic Mountain. You'll also see him doing coverage on the SCG tour with Cedric Phillips. And if you haven't heard my interview with Cedric, he's on Season 2, Episode 3. Stay tuned for the fifth part of our Wooberg series, last but not least, Green. Alrighty, it's that time of day to thank our Patreon supporters. Super big high fives to Brian Marcus, James L, Alex, Trevor, Caitlin, Aaron M, Neil, James G, Aaron C, Corey, Chad, Logan S, The Magic Man, Sam, Jesse, Ben, Nick, Eternal, Dirtles, Matthias, Charlie, Geraint, Scryfall, Matt, Ian, Prescovi, Carl, Logan F, Jaina, Kyle, and Ryan. Listeners, if you'd like to get special gifts for my interviews, become a supporter at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Your financial contribution does all the cool things like helping keep it running, which is a really important thing for the show. Dominaria is coming up, so when you're going to cardkingdom.com to buy a bunch of boxes, use my affiliate link, cardkingdom.com slash KTM. A big thank you again to all my Patreon supporters, past, present, and future. Your support of Kitchen Table Magic allows me to share stories about the amazing people in the Magic the Gathering community with the world. I've created a new YouTube channel called PlayMTG. It's an upbeat, fast-paced new YouTube channel featuring deck techs from the pros, learn-to-play tutorials, level-up advice, card discussion, MTG community news, and more. Just go to youtube.com slash C slash PlayMTG. You'll find links to the PlayMTG YouTube channel on facebook.com slash PlayMTG. And be sure to follow the show on Twitter at Play underscore MTG. I'm looking forward to creating new video content, and I've got some cool collaborations in the works please be sure to subscribe to Kitchen Table Magic on Apple Podcasts. And if you love the show, please leave us a review. It really helps other people find this podcast. Kitchen Table Magic is also on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Hipsters of the Coast, and mtgcast.com. Follow the show on Twitter at KTM Podcast, where you'll find me tweet memes. Yeah, mostly memes. The show is also on Facebook.com slash Kitchen Table Magic Podcast. All of the show notes are at kitchentablemagic.org. Remember to listen to past episodes and be sure to share KTM with a friend. Coming up on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. From Tarmogoyf to Swag Tusk to Crater Hoof to Force of Nature, Green is all about the beats. Even Green's lesser endowed creatures, the Elves, pack a huge punch when they gang up on you. Ramping into big mana and attacking with big creatures wins games. Are you ready for the sick gains? Do you even lift, bro? Step aside for the beefiest, trampliest, stompiest color in magic, green. Part 5 of our 5-part series on Wooburg, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. 